Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Debbie Lum has stories to tell, and we're glad she does. An award-winning editor and filmmaker, Debbie's projects give voice to the Asian American experience and other unsung stories. Her documentary, Try Harder, spotlights San Francisco's iconic Lowell School as it follows members of the senior class as they navigate the system and the pressure they feel applying to Ivy League colleges. Try Harder premiered at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival in the documentary competition. Debbie's previous doc, Seeking Asian Female, premiered at South by Southwest and was a fan favorite on PBS's Independent Lens. It won Best of Fest, Outstanding Director, LA Asian Pacific Film Festival, and was featured in This American Life. Debbie's editing credits include AKA Don Bonus, winner of a National Emmy, Kelly Loves Tony, a nominee for IDA Best Documentary, and To You, Sweetheart, Aloha. Let's meet and get to know Debbie Lum. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from San Francisco today. Thank you. Hello, Sandy. So nice to be here. Were movies a big part of your growing up? Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and our house happened to be right behind the largest uh, single theater in town, which um, was the <laughs> yeah was the Creepcore Cinema back in the days when you had one movie playing at one movie theater. Of course, of course. <laughs> I'm pretty ancient, so and actually one of my formative memories in childhood is trying to get back into our, our subdivision behind a row of cars that were lined up waiting for Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sort of a blockbuster generation kid when, when those were kind of a thing. And so yeah, when we spoke um, to you, Debbie, that you kind of discovered them on your own? Well, you know, I have to actually credit my father. He used to drag us to all these movies probably very age inappropriate, you know, everything <laughs> from Star Wars to art house theater. I remember seeing Akira Kurosawa's Ron and, ah. you know, weird movies like Picnic at Hanging Rock when I was quite So young. it was eclectic to put a exactly. different spin on it. Yeah. And then martial arts, you know, old Hong Kong <laughs> martial arts movies. In our generation, uh, maybe... Cable wasn't, you know, as huge. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we sat down in a theater and watched movies. So. so do you think his choices were more about what he wanted to see or more about what he wanted to expose his children to? Oh, no, definitely about what he wanted to see. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. So did you think it was onerous or did you get off on it? Oh, you know, I loved, I loved the movies. I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to like Star Wars. That's, you know, too sci-fi and nerdy mm -hmm. for me. But we were all, you know, how could you not? That feeling of sitting in a dark room, mm -hmm. watching a movie play out, um, was something that uh, very much resonates with the way that I see the world. So it was not necessarily inappropriate films. You saw a lot of the blockbusters. It satisfied his needs as well as yours and your siblings. Yeah, you know, we just took it all in, I think. And um, I grew up in the Midwest, but my father 
grew up in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and my mother grew up in New York City. So we always felt like we had a very eclectic background and exposure to different things. And so I think movies were just a way to see the world, right? I mean, it was quite limited being in a, a landlocked heartland <laughs> of America at the time, you know. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I didn't know anything about St. Louis. And ironically, both of my sons went to Wash U. And with the older one, that was the first time I had ever been in the, the state of Missouri. And all I knew was Anheuser-Busch and the Arch. But I was really very pleasantly surprised when you come from the East Coast, you get a bit of an attitude and you're a little holier than now. And <laughs> you go in thinking, yeah, whatever. But I was attracted to St. Louis. Oh, yeah, we understand that. And, and congratulations. Those are, that's a very hard school to get into these days. Although, you know, in, in the heartland, we always call that, or at least people from St. Louis would consider Washington University to be the Harvard of of the Midwest. (laughs) I had heard that. Yes, I've heard that. So you grew up being in front of the big screen and movies were always a big part of your life. And then when you got to college, did movies factor in any way? I went to Brown University and I took a film studies class in my freshman year. They're famous for European film theory, not so much production. And when I took classes, it really wasn't what I thought it would be. And I remember reading the first paragraph of some very dense film theory and and reading it over and over and over Mm -hmm. again, trying to understand, you know, Mm -hmm. what does like deconstructing the the meaning of the signs and symbols of... (laughs) Of semiotics mean. Um, so it was really kind of I don't even know theory. to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it definitely had a huge influence. I've noticed there's a lot of us with a Brown degree who go into documentary filmmaking. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. And so that was fostered in you after freshman year, as overwhelming as it might have seemed, that it became much more of a natural act for you to pursue this or your appetite was very whetted? I learned how to read a film like it was a textbook. So like it was a, you know, a great novel or a great piece of literature. Hmm. And that's what I learned to do at, at Brown. And we were exposed to, again, it was even more a broader expanse of eye-opening films I ended up not majoring in, in film theory or semiotics, as it was called at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up studying East Asian philosophy. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, but I went abroad in my junior year and took this program. It was through an association with Bard College. And we actually went to Asia and studied with a great cinema masters in in Asia from India to China, Hong Kong and Japan and it was it was really kind of mind-blowing. You know, we met with um Shohei Imamura in Japan and we studied the fifth generation of filmmakers in China and of course there was like of course Satyajit Ray and we went to Pune to Kerala to um you know at the time New Delhi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, it was just quenching your thirst for all the things that you couldn't reach at the time. Now, of course, everything has changed and uh, all of that is at our fingertips. We can just like 
put in a search engine, you know, type into the search engine. <laughs> so that year abroad in particular had quite an impact on you. What did that mean for you that you thought, I want to what when I graduate? I just wanted to do the thing that I loved, you know, which was make films. And um, I think there were other points along the way. I remember being a teenager when I saw a film called Chan is Missing by Wayne Wang. And Wayne Wang is really credited as the first uh, crossover filmmaker who made a film about San Francisco's Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And it crossed over into the mainstream or became a kind of a hit in the art house circuit. There was really kind of still a very segregated way of of looking at the world um, back then, especially in terms of art and movies. And he was really the first one to kind of bring a a very Chinese-American story into the mainstream. And I saw that as a teenager, and I remember seeing him do uh, a question and answer after the film screening and next to him was his wife, Cora Miao, who at the time she was kind of like a Hong Kong starlet. Um, I think she was famous for being in a soap opera playing across Chow Yun-Fat. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen as a mm-hmm. teenager. Being Asian American, your ideals of beauty were always somebody who didn't look anything like you. You were just um, that that just didn't exist, you know? I think I've had these influences along the way. And then when I graduated from college, as it turned out, Wayne Wang was um, making the film, The Joy Luck Club. I had decided that I was going to live in San Francisco, which I always call kind of Mecca for Asian Americans. Uh-huh. <laughs> Historically, it's been the city that is... Um, most welcoming. Has a very strong Asian American community. And I just kind of lucked out. I got a I got a job in the editing room working on the Joy Luck Club. And I have two parents that one one's a doctor and the other was a stay-at-home mom. And they both kind of encouraged us, or encouraged me anyway, to go into the arts. So it was just kind of a natural thing, I think. Did you know what you were doing? <laughs> I always say filmmaking is like a funny, funny career where you need, you don't really need to have any skills at all <laughs> to jump into it. Um, I don't know that I necessarily believe that, but <laughs> did you have more or less on-the-job training? The first person I met was working as an assistant editor, and he basically told me that it's an old-fashioned art. It's, you know, where apprenticeship is actually the most common way of learning. Um, People don't, back in those days, it wasn't like you went to film school. Mm. So it was on-the-job training? On-the-job training, yeah. You just dive into it. And and we were editing on 35-millimeter film, so basically they just need a bunch of, you know, manual labor. (laughs) (laughs) So you had this experience, but in your gut, did you think or know that you wanted to be the one whose eye was behind the camera? You know, I think that in itself, you know, as a as a woman, as um, someone who's Asian American, mm-hmm. that's not exactly something that you are, you know, 
someone's going to hand you on a, on a silver platter. I was just going to use that expression. Yeah. You really had to claw for that, didn't you? Well, and I mean, I just sort of worked very hard at, at what I was doing. And um, I was working as an assistant editor on the Joy Luck Club, which, you know, it's really just winding large reels of 35 millimeter film <laughs> and uh, syncing them for the dailies and, and watching the process of and assisting the editor. And then I got this call from a collaborator of Wayne Wang named Spencer Nakasako, who had just done this very kind of radical thing at the time, which was he gave a small camcorder, video camcorder, to a young Cambodian refugee teenager in San Francisco to film his school year. Actually, so the, one of the first films that I worked on was actually about a high school in San Francisco. And at the time, it was really crazy. They had just in, come out with these cameras, which mm -hmm. an ordinary person could use. Um, and they were very small, high eight technology. It was like high tech at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he gave um, this young boy named Sokli Nee a camera to record and had hundred, you know, like nearly a hundred hours of very unprofessionally shot footage. Uh -huh. <laughs> but he knew there was like an amazing story in there. And he also knew that if he had given that material to a traditional, someone who had been trained in, in editing, um, they probably would go nuts. Mm -hmm. It would be so difficult. And so what he did was he hired, he hired me to edit that and to work with him really to collaborate, um, because he was an editor as well. And so it was just this amazing opportunity. We, we cut it on video, which is nothing like cutting on computers. Every cut that you make, if you decide that you want to change it, you have to start over from the beginning oh, wow. and relay down every single edit. And I learned everything about telling a story from Spencer Nakasaka, the director of of this film called AKA Don Bonus. And that is the film that went on to win a, a national Emmy. So I feel very lucky to have met this sort of early generation of Asian American artists who are, who were really pioneers. What year are we talking about? Th this was the early nineties. What was the impact that they were Asian American and you're Asian American? If you are a minority and if you're, story is not in the canon, then you're, you may identify, you may be used to, and you may appreciate um, kind of the, the classic narrative, but you are also code switching because there's so many stories that you know of personally that nobody else does. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. stories of, of my ancestors who, who came to this country in the 1800s, um, stopping in Hawaii and working as um, plantation laborers and very different culture of, there's just so many stories that haven't been told. And I think I was yearning for that. My two of my documentaries that I've made and directed myself aired on, the, on public television on a series called Independent Lens. But if you look back and see how many stories that have been shown on independent lens that are about Asian Americans, 
you can count them on one hand. So they're not ubiquitous. Um, no, not at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the Joy Luck Club came out in the early 90s, it was an all Asian American cast. It was like a basically a Walt Disney picture. It was kind of a big deal. It was very popular. Um, but it took 25 years for that mm -hmm. to happen again mm -hmm. with uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. And so, you know, I think at the time I thought, oh, you know, this is this is great. This is like the new the new generation, right? The new era. But I didn't realize that it would actually take so much longer for these stories to get out there. So you felt that you had to take the bull by the horns yourself, that yes, it's one thing to edit a film, but you wanted to have the control. You wanted to be able to bring the films that you thought were important to the public. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just so many stories that don't get told. My previous documentary, Seeking Asian Female, um, it's the story of an older Caucasian man who is obsessed with finding a wife from China. Mm -hmm. And it's basically kind of an exploration of what is kind of, um, in colloquial terms, what's called yellow fever, yeah. not the disease from Africa. I got it. I got it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember having this idea as a woman and as an Asian American woman, and as someone who's very, who grew up, you know, as a woman, you always grew up kind of objectifying your own self. When you see women portrayed on film, they're, they have always historically been the objects, right? Not the protagonists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of had this idea that I would just, you know, flip, flip the, the switch. camera around, turn, you know, and see what it was like to observe what, a Caucasian man was doing, right? Um, when he was obsessed with Asian women. <laughs> so seeking Asian female was a feature. Yes, it was a feature. And it actually started out as a, a narrative idea. I applied to NYU uh, Film School for graduate school, and I got an interview, and I remember telling the, the film committee about this. And, you know... At the time, I was very pointedly asked, well, why is this a universal story? I don't understand what makes a story with this Asian-American content universal. Mm -hmm. I think we're in a different time today mm -hmm. where um, there's many, many different, different stories that are being told. Then there's not just the one, you know, that fits into the mold of, of what makes a uh, quote-unquote good story. There weren't very many Debbie Lums out there when you started directing. You didn't see yourself very much, did you? No, and in fact, I, it, it's such an exciting time today to see so many filmmakers that are women, so many more women, so many more Asian-American women. Chloe Zhao winning um, mm -hmm. Best Picture mm -hmm. for Nomadland. Of course, her film is not about, doesn't have any Asian American content, but Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. There's just so many other um, content makers out there today. It's very exciting because when <laughs> I was growing up, there weren't anyone really there. You had to do it yourself. And I sometimes I feel like, oh, well, I could probably retire now because people are doing <laughs> mm -hmm. great great things. You didn't have any female role models. You might be in that role now 
for other young Asian American women? Well, that has been really one of the most joyous things about our film, about Try Harder coming out at Sundance, was talking to so many young people who said to me, practically in tears, that I told their story, that we told their story. And that is a, yeah, that, you know, stays with you. I want to talk about the film because I saw it, obviously. Was this solely your idea? And then please explain the whole premise of the film. Yeah, you know, I guess making documentaries, you have to choose a subject that is going to be meaningful to you because, you know, it's going to, you're going to live with it for a really long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a really long time to make an independent documentary. And so originally I was going to make a film called My Tiger Mom. I was very interested in the sort of um, stereotype of the tiger mother who pushes really hard at all costs for academic success in their child. And I'm a mom. And when I was um, researching that documentary, my I was applying to kindergarten for my daughter. In San Francisco Bay Area, it's become very Manhattanized. <laughs> it's very high pressure to get into preschool. It's really kind of crazy. I mean, yeah. I met one mom who had applied to 40 preschools. Oh, good God. And I started talking to, you know, the school, the teachers and the principals. And one of the principals I talked to said, I get parents who come in with and say, you know, my three-year-old plays piano. She does mm-hmm. ballet. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, she's reading. What does your preschool, what can your preschool do to get my child into Harvard one day. Oh, good <laughs> Lord. And they're serious. And they're serious. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, I was originally um, thinking about looking at it from a parent's perspective, you know, you know, does tiger parenting work? Um, uh-huh. uh-huh. You know, looking, speaking to moms and speaking to teachers and counselors and principals throughout the Bay Area. What is the secret sauce that gets your kid into a, a top college? that's how it started did you feel that pressure when you were that age about going to an ivy here you are in the west coast and you came east my parents put us into a college prep but you know it's a different level of of pressure back then i definitely qualify for the term nerd i was (laughs) a big nerd when i was in high school i also was an athlete and and kids i think back then it was like only some kids were interested in, in working that hard in school. And a lot of kids just had other interests that were very important to them. And I definitely did not have a tiger mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had so your decisions were all your decisions. There was no pressure. Nobody was pointing you in a particular direction. You called your own shots. Yeah, I don't know how my mom did it. She did it in a very strange way. But um, I remember very clearly in high school, Seeing my friends, you know, back in those days, the tiger moms were were Jewish, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, or or wasps. And like I remember, my friends' parents enrolling them in SAT prep, and also, you know, really encouraging them and kind of feeling envious. Like I wish my mom would push me a little bit more. <laughs> she was very very laissez faire. She had that when she was growing up because she is the child of immigrants. And she really, she promised 
herself that she wouldn't do that. It's not really in her nature mm-hmm. to be like that. Um, what role did your dad play in in that? He didn't lean on you particularly. Oh, no, no, no. no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my parents actually um, separated at an early age. So, uh-huh. yeah, it was it was it was really all my mom. He was just there to give us a lot of bad influences, take us to movies that weren't <laughs> <laughs> the right. <laughs> So talk about Try Harder, a film that I saw and that I can't believe that anybody would watch and, quite frankly, not have a visceral reaction. It was more than just watching a film. I mean, I was in that kind of hook, line, and sinker. I remember when when the film was over, I was exhausted. We're in a time where it's extreme, where, you know, the stakes are really high and the odds of getting in are extremely low and and the pressure that kids are under um, is just ridiculous. It's a little, it's inhumane, mm-hmm. but it's also universal. I mean, there, I grew up around people who were pressurized, even if I wasn't. And I think it is a really natural instinct for a parent to want the best for their child. It's just the way in which we're trying to get there, I think has really evolved into people are professional students, you know, it's sort of like baseball or sports, you know, gaming the whole system so that, you know, your odds are higher. It's just the way that we're doing things now. Why did you make this film? Where were you when this idea came to you? Was it bigger than you were? It almost that you had to do this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there was definitely a calling. I mean, I think you're right, because originally we Lowell High School was going to be one chapter in the story. You know, I had talked to a bunch of moms and principals. They had told me about problems with suicide and suicidal ideation in high school today and how hard it is to get in. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to the children of these parents, the ones who are exceptional that are going to these colleges. And I, you know, Lowell High School is the top ranked public high school in San Francisco. It's it's iconic. When you move here, you know about Lowell High School, or if you grow up here, it's something that you are raised on. And through the teacher in our film, Mr. Shapiro, um, who teaches the reputedly hardest class, which as you said, it's like an AP physics class at Lowell High School. He introduced us to his students, and then his students had so much to say to us. It really felt to me like they needed the story to be told. And that's when we pivoted and realized, you know, what are we doing? They're the center of the story. And, um, you know, we met all these kids in in their junior year and decided um, when that school year ended that we would pivot and spend the next school year following them through their last year of high school. If they hadn't opened up to us and if they hadn't, uh, you know, shared all the angst and all the pressure that they're, they're under, I might have continued in a different path. That was not aberrational to have these parents leaning on their children about getting the good grades. And I remember a couple of the kids that you were talking to applying to 26 schools or 20 schools. I mean, it all was just nuts as I was watching this. All to what end? So that you could say you got into Harvard? 
Yeah, I think there's this notion in our society today about brand name success, you know, and I'm sure all the technology and social media makes it that much worse, you know, but we're really fixated on just a narrow, narrow band of, of um, definition for success. And, you know, there's much more out there in college than the eight Ivy League, Stanford, and Duke. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and WashU, you can add WashU in there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, that's not what a lot of, not just kids, but families feel today. I mean, I think when we were growing up, you might, the big thing would be to go to the same school that your parents went to. They're ah, a legacy, right? you mean. Yeah, like Notre Dame, if you're, if you're a Notre Dame alum, you know. But I, I think now it's like we're just fixated on other people's success. <laughs> it's, it's a strange time. What's the percentage of students at Lowell who are Asian American? What is the percentage? Yeah. Um, it's about, um, it's, you know, it's around 50%. Over the last couple of years, it's really shifted quite a bit um, because of the changes in the admissions policy. When we were there, it was uh, over 50, it was like 55% Asian American, but that's not including students of multiple races. So mm -hmm. biracial students, mm -hmm. most of whom in, in the Bay are part Asian, you know, they're, it felt like a very Asian American school, you know. What was your takeaway? What did you learn that you were surprised about? Well, there, there are two things, and they're actually probably two, two things two sides of the same coin, which is that it is universal. Everybody wants the best for their kid getting into a top school. You know, why wouldn't you try to go for it? And you read about it, you know, the papers and how hard it is and the odds are going to, you know, and they're probably going to get rejected if, you know, single digit acceptance rates. But when you watch a 17 year old or 18 year old apply to 25 schools, and then get rejected from the vast majority of them, you don't realize just how brutal oh, that is. Oh, God, for yes. Person. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the emotional impact and the toil, the toll um, that takes on, on somebody. That was pretty, pretty shocking. I mean, to see a whole school go through that was pretty shocking. Um, I mean, it's one thing to have your friend's kid go through that, right? Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. to see a whole school go through that. And then on the flip side, you know, these super, super highly educated, super smart kids, they were doing graduate level science research, presenting abstracts. I could not understand what they were talking about. That they, they were doing that in high school. In high school. Yeah. Um, they're really just teenagers, you know, teenagers, a lot of life and they don't take themselves that seriously. For the most part, you know, they are whimsical adolescents just trying to, like, enjoy themselves. And I think that they are two sides of the same coin. It's like um, we're kind of robbing our children of their of their childhood by turning them into professional Well, students. there was no balance, it seemed, Debbie, from what I gained from the film. The pressure and the eye on the prize. And it was just, I mean, there were parts of this film where I wasn't breathing. And I, I think a lot of students feel that way. One of the students we talked to 
he ended up going to a UC, California's public college. And when he got his acceptance from that college, um, he told me that he had been up at four in the morning because so many kids apply in order for the system not to crash. They um, say that people from this name to that name, you know, from C to... Oh, a lot in the uh, alphabet, you mean. In the mm-hmm. alphabet, can check their application from 4 a.m. until, you know, 8 a.m. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, And so he literally got up in the middle of the night to see whether... I mean, like, who is designing this system hmm. for young people? Or, you know, oh, you know, I got a... F- I got a false positive. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out they made an error and actually, you know, we didn't get in. We got rejected. I mean, there's so many stories like that. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's having the common app where people feel like, oh, you know, we've got it computerized. We'll just apply to a lot of schools, not realizing that each school is going to be several hundred dollars in application field. Yeah. Fees and each application, you know, is like, it's a lot of work. Did you feel that your film cast a dark shadow on Asian Americans? I'm not sure if my film is casting a dark shadow on Asian Americans. I think there are plenty of stereotypes out there that Asian Americans are competitive, ruthless um, test-taking machines, and that's what the kids talk about. And why Harvard University scores Asians lower on personality than other applicants. You know, um, I don't think that that. I think that's a cultural bias that we have somehow mm-hmm. in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if anything, people watch my film and just fall in love with the kids who are Asian American, like Alvin and Ian. He's got, he's like our, our resident, uh, wisecracking Wes Anderson character. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Alvin, he's like the, the super nerd, but, um, irrepressible and, and just like, I know so many moms who are like, I want to adopt that kid. <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about how the film has been received? Has it just blown you away? I mean, it's been amazing. And, um. We have had, you know, you know, I was just texting with the Lowell High School, the Lowell High School PTSA president before I jumped on this interview. We've had amazing support from the Lowell community, even despite all the the things that have happened. And I think these things are real, and there is a lot of. I think that there there's a lot of complexity to high school today. And when you put a name to it and you portray it in a three-dimensional way, um, it resonates for people to have their stories told. And, you know, Lowell High School is like the oldest high school west of the, the oldest public high school west of the Mississippi. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. But this is the first feature documentary about it. Well, it's very potent and it's very powerful. Moving away from Lowell, what are you setting your sights on these days? Um, well, I'm actually working on some screenplays. <laughs> uh-huh. And um Would you like to do a feature? To... <laughs> well, I'm I'm just writing right now, so mm-hmm. we'll see. But um we were 
still exploring the tiger mother. You know, I filmed all this footage of parents. <laughs> and um, in connection with Lowell, you mean? Um, not just Lowell. Okay. Throughout the Bay Area. Okay. Actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. In Silicon Valley, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, you know, we're we're developing a number of different things. There's a, a project in St. Louis, Missouri, but it's all pretty early. And the main thing that we've been doing is when, you know, you spend years and years making the film and then when it comes out, it's such, such a busy time. And we created this impact campaign for Try Harder to really try to do good with our film and to have... Um, students really be centered in the college application process by looking at mental health, promoting well wellness, and um, as well, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, I mean, um, we're working quite a bit on that. Do you step back and look at what you've done? Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, humbling. I I'm blown away by by the reception and it's just, it's a really wonderful feeling. Well, nobody suffers fools gladly. I mean, you made an incredible documentary. Oh, well, thank you very much. That is very kind of you. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that it moved you. (laughs) I have to assume, like you said, that you keep in touch with some of the, the folks in your film. They're still very much a part of your life. Yeah. Um, we often, do screenings and bring them to the panels afterwards. Oh, you know, very almost, nice. Very yeah. nice. I'm yeah. curious, what have your parents thought of what you've accomplished cinematically? <laughs> my mom is my biggest cheerleader. She's oh. so cute. Mm-hmm. Chinese moms have this reputation <laughs> for being like, they will, they have no they cannot control themselves, you know. <laughs> it's all about telling their neighbors, <laughs> their friends, how great their kids are. But my mom was not like that at all. Like mm-hmm. she she would never tell her friends where her kids went to college. And it's kind of an embarrassing life for her. two other sisters, you know. Mm-hmm. I was kind of the the loser of the family that got into Brown University. And you're the loser. Okay. <laughs> but my all mom right. would never say that to anybody. She's very sweet and very kind of self-deprecating. But something has happened in my, to her where she's like my biggest promoter. She could, I feel like she, you know, she's always trying to get people to go to my movie, <laughs> sell tickets. Well, that's Thank a no-brainer. You. The proof is in the pudding. You can see the fruits of your labor. And that's a really big deal. You know, I think that's what it is about making art or making film is that it it's not you. You know, you create this um, this thing which then goes out into the world and it's it kind of lives on its own. Um, and it, it interacts with people in a way that you can't really predict. That's the beauty of making art. I say this a lot only because it's true. I feel so strongly about it. The power of the documentary to expose, to educate... It just can't be overstated. I mean, what we can learn about life from the real world is is just so powerful. And I learned plenty from Try Harder. It was a film that really stuck to me. And I think that 
doesn't happen a lot. And to your credit, Debbie, you really made a, a very powerful documentary. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you keep us in your loop about what other projects are coming along, okay? Whether they're cinematic <laughs> or otherwise, I'd love to have you come back for a part two one of these days and tell us what you've been doing. My pleasure. Absolutely. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.